Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the 81 All Out podcast. I'm Siddhartha Vaidyanathan at SIDV on Twitter. And today I'm joined by, in my estimation, the most versatile cricket journalist, perhaps ever, uh, Jared Kimber. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has heard of Jared Kimber. If not, um, you know, look him up. There's enough on the internet to tell you who he is. And um, uh, he's prolific with his work in cricket, reporting, writing, blogging, podcasting, vlogging, whatever, you know, social media, <laughs> everything. So, uh, hi, Jared. Welcome. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Utility does make me sound like I bat at six and can't get through my full quota of overs, but that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. A- any position <laughs> you need me in the team. <laughs> well, let's say you're the, how do I put it? Mark Waugh of cricket, you know, so basically... Don't have to put my collar up now. <laughs> that doesn't work as well on a podcast. <laughs> and, and you need your shades on as well for the yeah. podcast. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so I've been meaning to call Jared for a while to talk about uh, basically anything, I guess. I can talk to him about cricket. But today I wanted to focus on one of my favorite pieces that he wrote. He wrote this in uh, last year. April 2019, though now that appears as if it's 15 years ago, (laughs) if you think about it. But uh, this was uh, for the Cricket Monthly, and it was titled The Ugly Australian, The Evolution of a Cricket Species. And I thought uh, among all the pieces that he's written, this was um, uh, probably one of his most personal pieces. And I loved how he spoke about himself and his own evolution in terms of... um, cricket and sledging and the attitudes towards opponents, attitude towards the game in general. And Jared's piece came a year after the Sandpaper Gate controversy, which, of course, everyone listening to this podcast knows about. And uh, perhaps the biggest controversy, you know, uh, through the 2010s, maybe I can think of spot fixing or a few other things. But yeah, I think Sandpaper Gate pretty much would win the, win the deal. Uh, contained all the elements of uh, a drama, a cunning and cheating and caught on camera, uh, moralism, everything that you need as a perfect plot. And of course, in Australia, it was, uh, I think, a national crisis for a while, if not, if if it still isn't still. So, Jared, reading the piece, it struck me how, um, you know, one of the things that struck me how Australian cricket is pretty much its own country. Like, it has its own rules, its uh, moral codes, the cricketers who come in, you know, including you, who are a very early age was introduced to this whole club culture, seemed to know pretty early what um, was okay and what was not okay. But at the same time, there's also this stretchable boundaries of what is the line and what's not the line, what you can do, what's a joke. Uh, and this seems to be like, weirdly, among all the countries that I know that play cricket, a national kind of a stereotype that builds up. It's the Australian way, and this is how Australians play cricket. It's a little bizarre if you think about it, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and I suppose I didn't realise it was bizarre until I was out of it. Um, You know, little little moments where, you know, I would start playing cricket in England. I I suppose it started with the blogging as well. Once you start to understand the other cultures that you're blogging about and writing about, you start to get a bit of an idea that how different Australia is to everyone else. But, yeah, certainly playing cricket in England. I remember playing quite early on against this really annoying 16-year-old batsman who could only hit the ball through backward point. 
and our captain would not allow my field uh, plan of three gullies um, uh, against him. So this kid made 80 or 90. And at one stage, one of our bowlers just lost the plot and bounced him and hit him, hit him in the helmet. Everyone else instantly went, ooh, and I started laughing. And I realized straight away that this was not Australia. There's no – people would have asked him if he was okay in Australia, but they would have said toughen up Buttercup. And they would have said, the next one's coming now. Uh, he would have been told he wasn't hard enough. Uh, he would have been told that the next one will hit him in the throat. All those sorts of things. Whereas this was just a bunch of like middle-aged men really worried that this young guy had been hit in the head. And you, it was a real uh, eye-opener for me at how much different the, the culture was. And I happen to come from uh, a very, very hard-nosed cricket culture. Um, I... I when I it was only really through writing this piece I realized that mine was probably you know the 99th percentile of violent angry Australian club cricket but that also helped for the piece because the things that happened in 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 uh in my cricket career were extreme and I, I remember when I wrote it people from other countries would say oh you know I was in India and there was a fight on this field and uh but you know whatever and I said I haven't even mentioned like 30 of the biggest stories that happened to me in cricket like you can't even compare one fight in Essex to the whole thing that, that you know, that, that we sort of went through um, as, a, a you know, playing club cricket when we did. And it was, it was a hard contact sport. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that for many different reasons, partly to do with the fact that the Irish and the Scottish were very powerful in Australian cricket from an early point, it was a very, very working class game. And cricket is not a very, very working class game in most other countries. There are parts of it and certainly parts of Asia now is sweeping up. And, uh, you know, there are different parts of the world. Obviously, the West Indies is, is probably one of the other few very working class cricket um, cultures. But Australia just didn't just it just didn't have that sort of middle class poshness to it, um, probably from World War One onwards, but even earlier, early doors. And it meant that it was a different sport. It's really a code of football. Uh, in many ways, uh, the way that, that cricket is played. I remember the first time I was playing in a game uh, of cricket when we had one captain who want, who would clap the opposition captain when they came out to bat. And just the alien concept of being friendly to the opposition captain, uh, it really was a very, very brutal, um, angry form of cricket that I learned the game in. And, and this whole brutal, angry form seems to spread around around the game as well. Like uh, every time a team, at least back then in the 80s and 90s, uh, in the 90s and 2000s when the Australian team was one of the greatest, whenever a team landed there, the press would automatically get on this meanness to the opposition opponent, opponents. They would pick out all these weaknesses that they see in the in the uh, team that's touring and uh, talk about them and. To, the, to an extent, even ridicule them to some extent, and it seems that the, the what the team was doing on the field was also, you know, spreading its wings to different parts of Australian cricket as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you have to understand that it is. If you've ever been the MCG on Boxing Day, uh, outside of the odd to the press box, <laughs> <laughs> well, the press box is uh, is not like the not like the other. <laughs> certainly not like. The, the old Great Southern Stand used to be, or even before the Great Southern Stand, uh, you know, so when my father would go to the cricket mm. in, in the 70s and 80s, 
uh, they would take a foam esky. So an esky is a big box of beer. So it would be a foam disposable esky that it would take two of them to carry it in because it would have so much beer and so much ice in it. And when the if they hadn't finished their beer by the end of play, they would just sit there drinking. And you had tens of thousands of people doing this, bringing their own alcohol in, drinking in, in the hot sun on a, when you know you didn't have to work the next day because it was Boxing Day. So you had, you know, you had a, a day off. And it, so you have that. You then have the Brisbane crowds, which, you know, it's called the Gavatoire for a reason. It's not just that Australia was so good at it. It's, a, you know, quite a full-on place. It's where Ian O'Brien was, um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> called a homophobic slur for hours and hours on end. Uh, Cricket Australia denied that, by the way. Why he would make up that is quite odd. But... Um, I've certainly seen uh, Jonathan Trott had a similar treatment um, there. So that's another vicious cricket crowd. Uh, Adelaide can be quite vicious. The Wacker, I mean, to be fair, it's too hot to live in Western Australia and the ground was uh, an absolute piece of shit. So I can understand why all their fans are angry. Uh, you know, Sydney was probably one of the few that wasn't like that. And so you had these really vicious crowds even before you factor in the players and the media and channel nine channel nine played a part in, in all of that as well. Um, that, you know, what, during the channel nine period, they really, Tony Gregg aside, didn't really talk up the cricket of the opposition. The opposition were victims and villains and stooges and, uh, and those sorts of things. And it just, and it all became this sort of thing. And then, as I said, if it's more of a football culture, you can see why that kind of, treatment was okay some of the stuff i saw in mcg outer uh in the 90s was phenomenal like you know other than other than stupid things like people peeing in a cup and then throwing it up in the air to throw piss on everyone else which actually happened you know i was there when they threw golf balls at the english players i was there when a uh australian fan tried to hit a pakistani fan with a flag all the sorts of things that they built, like those containers to stop in India, was happening in Australia, but add alcohol and testosterone. It was the whole thing. I could understand why touring Australia was – it must have been a really interesting place because you actually have – living in Australia and being in Australia is a great place to drink and eat and travel – but, you know, you get in a cab and the cab driver calls you a scumbag and <laughs> uh, you get to the hotel and the hotel goes, you know, Lily's going to smack you in the face tomorrow and uh, <laughs> uh, Mitchell Johnson's going to take your head off and all that sort of stuff. You must be like, what? Uh, so it is, it, it really, that was one thing I noticed. And it's really, the, the other thing you notice is very few women in my story, a handful of women. It's because it's almost entirely a male cricket culture that that brings that about. Most of the women cricketers, they were hard, but they weren't they weren't vicious in the same way. Uh, I had a lot to do with women's cricket when I was growing up. Uh, I played with in men's teams that had women in it. Um, uh, one of uh, one of our family friends played cricket. I coached uh, women's cricket. They were hard, but they weren't aggressive. That real aggressive, full-on nature it seemed to be more to do with the men. Um, and uh, it was just, it was from bottom to top, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, that's a very important point. And I was coming to that about the whole toxicity that an all-male uh, environments can often generate. I mean, I, you know, I, not to plug my book or anything, but my book is set in an all-boys school. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I sort of explored the themes of uh, how masculinity, masculinity can get so vicious and... Uh, 
often, you know, I'm glad that you wrote about your experiences when you were a teenager, because that's when you, that's one of the few times when you actually realize how uh, absurd and ridiculous things are. But the more you continue to play and the more you get into the system, then you think that it's just the way it is. It's normal mm. and everything becomes normalized. And, you know, a lot of it is about fitting in, isn't it? I mean, if you don't fit in, it's almost like you're you're nobody. You You can't play this game or you can't be in this system if you don't fit into what the dominant uh, 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 culture is. Yeah, well, Victoria, it's funny that Dean Jones has just passed. Uh, Victoria had this culture of you basically, they would abuse the hell out of young players so they knew which young players were tough enough, which is obviously a ridiculous thing because what if one of those young players is Don Bradman? (laughs) And even if he's not tough enough, he still manages the average 80 or something. It's a a kind of a ridiculous thing, but that's what they believed at that time. Do do you remember when Marlon Samuels and... um, And uh, Shane Warne, you know, so Samuels threw a bat at him and Shane Warne threw a ball at him and they both should have been suspended for the rest of the Big Bash series. And uh, James Sutherland came out and just was like, no, I thought it was good for the game. You know, when the the bastard monkey gate happened between Australia and India, uh, James Sutherland said, well, it's not tiddlywinks. It it was, it was, when I say it was from top to bottom, it really was some of the, one of the biggest fights I ever had in cricket in my life was in the Cricket Australia boardroom. Uh, where I was there to do a very simple interview with someone and it went toxic very quickly. A very Donald Trump style, thinking back on it. Like, how dare you ask questions of our leader like that? Um, you know, that sort of stuff. And and it really was a really, really aggressive uh, way. And the quite often the club cricket was worse. That was one of the the, the weird things uh, that... that having talked to guys who came up and after I wrote that piece, test cricketers from Australia contacted me, uh, most putting me for the piece, uh, but mostly either suggesting they had further stories or they were glad that someone just said it, um, that someone came out and said, this is a bad culture and we need to change it. And they were saying that you just, and, and I already knew this, I might've even mentioned it in the piece that the club cricket was where it was at its worst. And the higher you got, the less stressful it was. And by the time, that's why the Australian cricketers could never understand why the Indians or the Sri Lankans or the English were so upset. They were like, if you think this is bad, go and play club cricket. Talk, talk to Stuart Broad about the treatment he got as a former test player's son uh, when he played club cricket in Werribee. Now, I, oh, well, Hopper's Crossing, actually, to be technical, but it's all the same. Uh, I played cricket out there. My, my family's from out, uh, some of my family live out that way. I can only imagine the sort of stuff that Stuart Broad was told on a daily basis. I remember playing cricket with Stuart, uh, with uh, Ed Joyce in club cricket and the sledging he got was just, you know, why don't you go fuck a potato over and over again? And a friend of mine played club cricket in, in Hobart and he's from Scotland. Um, and he was just, he the, the, the abuse that you get. So the higher level you got, it, it was actually not as bad, but it's that toxicity that goes up that it, it allows the guys to think, oh, we're, we're, we're not that bad. We're, we're, we're playing. Whereas realistically, it's the club level uh, that was the biggest problem and still is, even though I, I would have to say that I think the 90s, the 70s, 80s and 90s were the worst period. I think it is. I think cricket has moved on a lot uh, in Australia. But, you know, I still get contacted by people who read that piece and go, this happened to me last week. And this is what my club says about Asian people. And this is what my club has said about the Sudanese kid who came and bowled 90 miles an hour. But they said, you know, they, uh, his nickname was Dark Lightning or 
you know, whatever it is, those sorts of things still happen. It, it hasn't gone away. So does it happen partly also because it works? I mean, does it at, do the teams that actually benefit from it or is it, as you mentioned in the piece, are they good anyway? And so they feel that, you know, does, does the winning lead to the sledging or does the sledging lead to the winning it, at the club level? I've only, I can only say one particular game I ever saw where sledging on its own won a game, but that was absolute violent sledging where I think the club was suspended for five years after winning that title. Uh, there, two of the players were suspended from playing cricket for life. Um, it was, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was bordering on, um, uh, I don't want to say attempted murder, but it was bordering on, uh, you know, um, threatening, um, grievous bodily harm and murder that particular game. And the opposition team couldn't handle it because they were just like, <laughs> what do you do? And the, and the, these guys were threatening the umpires. The umpires were just as terrified. We're in the middle of nowhere because it was a semi-rural um, competition. As so a it general, was like nine and a half on a scale of one to ten. It was that level, that bad. Oh, it was it was eleven. It was beyond. Okay. Like <laughs> it was it was it it, it was the most full on um, atmosphere I've ever seen at any sport I've ever been to, and it was fifteen fat middle aged guys trying to win a, a <laughs> oh, fourth gosh. fourth eleven premiership or a third eleven premiership. Embarrassing. So <laughs> it was it was incredible. So. That that particular game I saw it. Mostly though, you gotta remember both teams are going so hard that it almost cancels each other out. I'm not saying it doesn't get particular batsmen out, and good sledging can quite be quite ha- handy, and it probably does sort out players on a certain level. The thing is though, that we have now learnt with feedback loops and education and all those sorts of things that capital punishment doesn't particularly work. That screaming at a young kid doesn't make them better at anything. Uh, all of those sorts of things that is what, what a lot of the stuff that I grew up playing cricket as uh, don't really work. And we know that now, <laughs> um, you know, you don't get, you know, to go back to the Victorian cricket thing before, you know, Dean Jones played with a guy, uh, the coach there was Les Stillman and Les Stillman thought he was a football coach and would yell like a nineties football coach would. Uh, and uh, no, no cricket coach really does that now. They, they might raise their voice at a moment, you know, they still use their voice and their masculinity and their aggression and their former playness and all that sort of stuff. But they're not screaming at a bloke every single moment the way that, that, that it was before. And that's because we know that sort of stuff doesn't work. So if we know that sort of stuff doesn't work, you do have to question at a certain level if it works. It probably allowed for a certain kind of cricketer, which is the Glenn McGrath, Shane Warne, um, Ricky Ponting, Steve Wall type of cricketer. I know of Australian cricketers, even separate to my uh, uh, people who haven't contacted me about my piece, who just were like, it's so tiring. I just wanted to go out there and make runs. It's so tiring. I, I think I could face, you know, anyone. I mean, the, the, the great one, I think, isn't it Steve Wall when he talks about, no, it's Matthew Hayden talks about Raul Dravid. Says, if you want to know what mental disintegration is, look into his eyes. Raul Dravid wasn't a yeller. You know, Raul Dravid wasn't a screamer. Um, is anyone saying he wasn't tough? Is anyone saying Sachin Tendulkar wasn't tough? They were tough in a different way. But, uh, you know, every if, to get through county cricket and make it to um, test cricket as an English player with all the players that are out there and a county system that is almost set up to make you fail, uh, you have to have a certain level of toughness. Be a West Indian. 
um, and make it through their disastrous first class system and make it to test cricket and make money off it. You have to be a tough person. Do you know what I mean? There aren't many people who aren't tough in the first place. If you sit there screaming at a 16 year old because he dropped the catch, there's a really good moment. I mean, the test is a really good one because don't forget that the test, that documentary that Cricket Australia put out on Amazon Prime is supposed to be saying how great Australian cricket is now and how they've recovered. And you see um, um, Justin Langer come in and berate Aaron Finch when Aaron Finch doesn't know he's got an, uh, he hasn't got an edge or has got an edge on it and he should have DRSed it. And, and Justin Langer's just being really rude and aggressive to him. And I'm thinking, he's just said he doesn't know. That's the end of the conversation. If he thought he hit it and he didn't DRS it or the other way around, I can't remember which way it was, but if he thought that and he didn't do it, that's a, that's a good conversation. You get to him later and you go, we've got to talk about your decision-making. We've got to talk about why you're not decisive enough. We've got to talk about these sorts of things. You're an important man for the team. Put yourself first, etc. But Finch is like, I didn't think I hit it. And Lang is still yelling at him. And you just go, what does he learn in that moment? What does he learn? And that I had so many flashbacks to that like I, ha- I remember a captain coming up to me and go hey you never bowl again for this fucking club um if you bowl another full toss and i was 15 and a leg spinner bowling full tosses was what i did man you know what i mean yeah bowling full tosses is part of the leg spinner's uh, job <laughs> so how does that help me now i'm bowling in fear Right. And, and I wasn't a timid kid. You can read the piece. I was, I gave it, I was at 15 sledging men who'd come out of prison to play against us. It didn't bother me, but I was just like, well, what do I do with this next ball now? I have to make sure it lands. So all I did was just bowl worse. Uh, another time when I said to a, a captain after he'd made me feel from um, a long on to long on for an entire day, I played junior cricket in the morning, bowled 25 overs. I bowled 15 overs to him and then bowled, and fielded from long on to long on, on a 40 degree day. After about 40 overs. So by that stage, I had I was 90 overs into being in the field in the day, and we had another 40 to go. Right? That was, uh, 130 over days is what I used to do in, in club cricket. And uh I said to him, Do you mind if I just don't do long on to long on? And he and he just literally he sent me off the field. He said, You're not tough enough to be out here. He said, I can replace you with a bloke who works in a factory. He's like, that's fine. I'm still tired. Like, I'm still hot. Like, there is a physical reason I am saying this. He can replace you with a tough Queenslander. That sort of stuff. And you just, do you remember? So the tough Queenslander thing is a perfect example of, so when Dean Jones was shitting himself in Madras and Alan Border says, we're going to replace you with a tough Queenslander. That's not going to stop Dean Jones from shitting himself on the field. Right. And do you remember when Matt Ranshaw had the runs in the test match a couple of years ago in the Muslim Pune and Alan Border went ballistic. And again, it's like, you can be as angry as you want, Alan Border. That shit is still going to come out of Matt Renshaw. It's going to come out on, on the field, which might put him off and get it, make him lose his wicket. Or it's gonna, he's going to go off to the toilet, retire, let, get some fluids back into him and come back on and bat on. That was the kind of thing that, I, that was the stuff that I couldn't understand. I, underst- I understood the toughness of cricket and understand the way of playing Australian cricket, which is no compromises, which is putting your body on the line. And to be honest, a lot of things that Australian cricket does, other nations didn't do before Australia. They didn't run as hard. They didn't dive in the field. Uh, they wouldn't put their body on the line. Uh, all those sorts of things. They didn't like being hit. It was an, I, the, one of the first stories I was told, told as a kid was a bloke who got hit in the head by the fastest bowler in the competition. And uh, he went down... He saw his tooth and he ignored his tooth, picked up the ball, tossed it back to the bloke and said, is that the best you've got? 
That was how we were trained. And we understood that. But you also understand that bloke's probably got concussion and also his tooth's on the ground. <laughs> Someone's going to pick up his tooth for him. It's little things like that where you understand how it works and how it got a particular kind of cricketer. But there's also a reason why I think that New Zealanders and uh, English people also look down on Australian cricket as uh, being all thuggish and not very, um, not very smart. And it's because if you said something smart on Australian cricket field, it was like, no, we'll just bounce him again, mate. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was and like not that. very smart is very crucial because I was reading this book by um, uh, this book about the tight test, you know, that came out, Borders Battlers by Michael Sexton. And I did a podcast with him as well recently. And in that, he says that Dean Jones was, and Errol Alcott, the physio says that Dean Jones, had he gone like another hour or so, it could have been touch and go. Mm. Which means that Alan Border getting Dean Jones, saying that to Dean Jones and forcing Dean Jones to play on was, you know, you were risking his life. <laughs> you know, it sounds great and legend when you look back and say, hey, tough Queenslander, but here's a guy who could have died on the cricket field. Thanks and to. Yeah, and that's a test match, right? Yeah, I I saw that in club cricket in low level, not even not even, and I'm not talking grade cricket. I mean, literally club cricket. Guys coming from the Ford factory to play on a Saturday. We played with a guy who he fielded a short leg for me, and I bowled a full toss, and he got hit directly in on the skull with no helmet on. All right, so I bowled a knee high full toss. Guys just swung through the line, hit him in the head. Ball went so high up in the air that I ran as the bowler in to catch it. I think he lost consciousness. Uh, uh, and we carried him off the field. He picked up consciousness, I think. It was a really big ground. So we must have carried him for 80, 70 metres before he picked up consciousness. And then he offered to go out and bat. And they would have let him. It was just that they didn't think he was that good a batsman and there was no point. So they ended up sending him to hospital. But I saw guys do things like that. I played with a guy who played through a hernia. Um, I played with another guy who needed a, um, a, a oh God, I'm trying to think of the a knee reconstruction and he could only run in straight lines up and back when he, when he would run. And this is like, you know, some of this was slightly higher level cricket, but it's the same sort of thing. And it's just, no one wanted to be called soft. Everyone was sort of in it to be, and it was just this, it was a real cult at times, the way that people thought about it. And I'll go to a really interesting story. I think Sam Perry wrote this a couple of years ago, and I don't know who the player was, although I suspect I know who the player was. Darren Lehman was there, was just going, you just got to go out and fucking hit the ball. I, I, I forget the phrase, but just fucking hit it or, or something along those lines. <laughs> you just got to be more aggressive. You got to hit it. You'll be more aggressive. Got to hit it. And he's going on and on. And eventually some bloke just puts his hand up and goes, that's all great, boof. Um, I keep nicking off outside off stump. Can someone help me with the technique? And that sort of stuff really really again hit home with it's still going on and that sort of thing is still going on we just like oh God. i mean it's it's so weird that so many so many australian coaches are out there and when so many of them are just like just fucking hit the ball mate just fucking hit the ball it's, it's, what and i in some ways i love the way that australia has reduced cricket to the very basic things of bowl very fast spin the ball very far hit the ball very hard but you and i both know that that doesn't help on uh, facing Harbhajan Singh on an absolute Bunsen. Do you know what I mean? That doesn't yeah. help when you go to Guyana and the ball won't uh, bounce above your ankles. And that doesn't help on a green top at Edgebaston, all those sorts of things. So 
it's that one dimensional thing. And I think a lot of my cricket writing comes from rebelling against what I grew up with, which is like, why do we think that is the only way? There are, there are no other, t- the English cricketers laugh at the way the Australian cricketers talk about the baggy green, right? And all that sort of stuff. But they do believe it is like a military calling. And that means that they play cricket. Australians play cricket as a team sport in a way that other countries do not. And I truly believe that the more um, stuff I've done uh, in, in my career, that said, that doesn't mean that it doesn't become a, a weird cult. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It doesn't mean that there's not negatives that come with that. There are positives, but there are also negatives. Yeah, one, one point about the sledging I wanted to uh, ask you before moving on is that, um, you know, at the, at the international level, it seems that the Australian teams are, I mean, especially the very good Australian teams are aware of who, of when sledging works and when it doesn't. Because uh, VVS Lakshman uh, has written and has said many times that, you know, they knew it wouldn't work against him, so they didn't. Mm. And he said that very, very few Australians actually sledged him. And uh, I'm assuming it's similar for a few other players. But at the club level, it seems that it's indiscriminate. It doesn't matter that if it works or not. It's just, it's just, it's a dumb thing for everybody, right? Yeah, I think that the difference at the club level is that you often don't know the player. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, perhaps as, as you know, uh, as someone who was so angry at everyone, I played a lot better when I was sledged. So most of my, um, my first, I think my first big score in senior cricket was oh, oh probably my, my first really really um a good senior cricket score was in the game where they threatened to rape my mum or said they were going to rape my mum uh another game uh, one of my last games of cricket that i played in australia I made 100 and it was all about me and the captain going completely at each other if these guys knew my personality or my makeup at all uh they wouldn't have done that you can take that through to my whole career the minute giles clark went for my career i was like well, that's it, where death of a gentleman is balls in now. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Giles, you don't know who you're messing with. And that's the, that's my kind of personality in that sort of way. If, if people knew that, they wouldn't do that. Do you know what I mean? And in international cricket, you get to know people a little bit more. You play against them more often. You realise the players that you can talk to and you can't talk to. If you've grown up as sledges, and let's be honest, it's not, it's not like all 11 players on every Australian club team are sledging. You know, sometimes it's one guy. It's just that, happen- that happens to be that guy's really loud and doesn't stop. Sometimes you go against teams where it's three or four people. And I have seen teams where it's all 11. But if you are sledging, it's like, it's like any other skill. At a certain point, you work out uh, which is how to get to the guy, uh, how to get them out. And you're essentially, you're trying to get them out of their bubble one way or another, whether it's trying to get them angry, whether it's trying to get them upset, whether it's trying to get them scared, whether it's trying to get them laughing, whatever you're trying to do with that sort of sledging, that is what you're trying to do. So you'll even, I remember in club cricket, you would, you would have, you would almost have specialist sledges in different ways. So my way was to try and find the, the sort of the weakness to, to the opposition player. Like that thing that they when, they, when they go to bed at night, they wish they were better at at cricket. That would be the thing that I would be able to find in them, which has actually gone on to uh, be quite profitable as a cricket writer. Um, but then you had the outright aggressive guys. I mean, I was a skinny little kid with braces. Like there's no point me going, I'm going to punch you out the back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas we had guys with, you know, I played with guys with teardrop tattoos uh, from Pentridge P- Prison where, um, uh, where uh, Chopper Reed um, 
uh, went to <laughs> went to jail and chopped off his ear. You know, I, there's no point me threatening when <laughs> you've got those sorts of people. And then, you know, you had the funny guys, you had all those sorts of things. So I think once you got to the international level, uh, it was a similar kind of, uh, of way. And a lot of the sledging would be, you know, I, and, and the other thing is, and having talked to international cricketers, you probably think a lot of the sledging is crap. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's not very good. It doesn't Unimaginative, work. yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't work the way... One of my favourite stories is not about Australian cricket, but it's the Kumar Sangakkara, Sean Pollock story. In fact, there's yeah. two great stories in cricket history. Kumar Sangakkara is one when Sean Pollock comes out to bat and he sledges him behind. If you talk to Polly about that, he's like, I was kind of half listening. I wasn't even focusing. And it wasn't like Polly went out three or four balls later. Like, he scored 15 or 16, I think, off the top of my head. The other one is, I think, I want to get this right, it's uh, Warwick Armstrong to, I think, Frank Woolley or Les Ames. I always forget which one of them it is. But where he bowls for 20 – so a young young English talented player comes out to play. Warwick Armstrong walks beside the pitch and on the warm-up pitches bowls for something like 15 minutes straight <laughs> and just like complete – and like just stops the game to get inside. The, and again, I, I can't remember whoever it was, made 15 or 20-odd runs. I'm not saying it didn't play a part, but it's like, if it was that brilliant, I'd like, you know, if it was that brilliant, I'd want it to be Tino Best. I'd want it to be mine, the windows, Tino. I'd want it to be Keith Arthurton where, you know, Warney would say something and next ball Keith Arthurton would run down and try and smash him out of the park and go out. It w- it's very rarely that sort of stuff. Um, and maybe you can wear them down over time. Uh, and there are some players where it, maybe the effect doesn't even take effect straight away, but it's not, it's not as brilliant as you would think it would be. And I think a lot of it's overrated. And what I've been told by test cricket is, is that you generally really get aggressive when you're frustrated anyway. So a clever player will go, we've got them. You know, <laughs> we've got them now. Okay. If they're angry, we've got them. And if you're playing against an Australian cricketer and they get angry, I would say that you have got them. More often than not, that is the reason. There's only two reasons they go really, really hard. Um, they either think you're completely shit and it won't matter. Or you're about to get them, and this is this is their last play, and uh, you know my career that you know those were the two times when teams went the hardest at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, f- Sandpaper Gate. Go- just going back to Sandpaper Gate, um, you know the one character in that whole thing which uh, I felt had the most touching, poignant story was Cameron Bancroft. I mean, of course there was Steve Smith and David Warner, but here you have Bancroft. This you know, largely inexperienced young guy in the team. And he had this quote, which I think you also mentioned in the piece about how, you know, the problem was that I would have gone to bed and I would have felt like I let everyone down. He's saying this if he hadn't done what he was instructed to do. And that's the thing, isn't it? Like when you're in the system, you're basically trapped. Mm. You have to pretty much go with the flow and go with what people are telling you to do because otherwise you're in trouble. And if you do it, you're in even, you're in deep trouble as well. Like you really don't have a choice. And I'm sure there's so many cases in club cricket where a young person comes in and not sandpaper, which is taking it a bit to a different level, but Mm. just small things like, you know, getting after the opponent, doing some silly things, sledging all day or something. It just, you're just drawn to doing it. Yeah. Well, I remember remember Shane Warne going on and on about Mitchell Stark's body language. Um, and since then, Mitchell Stark occasionally tells players to fuck off and does sledging and staring. And it's like he still kind of looks like a big 
overgrown teenager with a sort of he's got that sort of acne face and the sort of adam's apple and i'm just like is he really like i mean he bowls at 95 miles an hour and bowls in swing just focus on your game and doing that and i, I know there are guys like andre nell that need to build themselves up I don't think mitchell stark is necessarily one of those and i'm not sure when he is fired up if he bowls that much better but I think it's it's all that sort of stuff of that that whole thing you said about Bancroft about feeling like you've let people down and uh, I remember very very early on in my club well my school cricket actually we did school cricket's not a very big thing especially in the working class uh, parts of Australia but I remember playing a very young game when I was I was made vice captain like before like um, uh, when I was still year uh, grade five before I was uh, grade six and it was a big thing for the older kids that it annoyed them you know, that I'd been yeah. promoted ahead of them. Uh, the I think, Yeah. And I, I was wicket-keeping in a game and uh, a, the ball hit something and kicked up and hit me in the chest and winded me. And the, the you know, these were 11 and 12-year-olds. And the sort of stuff, they, they were just like, you're too soft to go on. We always knew you weren't up for it. And these are my teammates. <laughs> these are the guys that, you know, that I was – and so I, I, I went on and kept. I shouldn't have been keeping. I could barely breathe. <laughs> like it, it obviously got me in the diaphragm or wherever, wherever it gets you where you, where you struggle to breathe. And um, I, I only kept because if I didn't, that was it. I was never going to win them over. And it doesn't, you know, and you, you go back to the Dean Jones story that you said before, and I certainly know other Australian cricketers and Shield cricketers who have said similar things. It, you know, that is, that, that is a sort of a trap of Australian cricket where – it's taking the good thing, which is we're all in this together, and it's just twisting it that little bit too far, which is we're all in this together, but you're soft. Uh, I mean, I think I've written about this before, um, so I hope I'm not outing him, but Eddie Cowan was vomiting basically in a toilet before his last test innings. Was his last test innings? When did he make? Oh, sorry. Might be his second last test innings. Uh, he was batting at number three. He never batted at number three before. They said to him, we think you can make it as a number three, you know, average 35 to 40, grind it out for us, be like a, uh, you know, a, a backup opener. And he's like, yeah. And then he got really, really sick and vomited for about four, four or five straight days. Was basically vomiting in the toilet. And maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I don't think he was far away from a vomit when the wicket fell. And they just sent him out there. You've got to be tough enough. And he first ball, he goes out there. Stephen Finn bowls what Eddie believed was a full toss. He thinks, great, full toss, I'll get off the mark. It's a half volley, nicks it straight to slip. Graham Smith, uh, Graham Smith, Graham Swan, one of his mates, takes the catch. And that's basically the end of Eddie Cowan's career there. <laughs> now, wow. you could say that Eddie Cowan wasn't good enough and he wasn't going to make it anyway. But you could also say, let's say he was. And that's it. He struggled, he struggled, he struggled, he gets a new role. You've now lost a quality player because you've sent them out when they shouldn't be out in the middle of the ground. He saw a full toss that wasn't there because he just, he was, he was probably dehydrated a little bit. <coughs> now, Eddie Cowan is a one-off story. Dean Jones is a one-off story. Cameron Bancroft is a one-off story until you start piling them up one on top of the other. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got people like Dougie Bollinger bowling until he's ripped the, his, you know, the muscles off his rib cage or whatever he did. Uh, then you've got guys like, you know, Ryan Harris bowling until he, there's nothing left in his, in his knees and all those sorts of things. It's got its good sides and it's got its bad sides and it can be toxic. My biggest problem is that they just don't admit it's toxic. They don't admit that it goes too far. 
And Sandpaper Gate, in the end, should have been the time where we all just went, there's a way that Australia plays cricket, and we've also convinced ourselves that this that part of it is being arseholes. We let's take that back that bit away. Let's say this is one and all, but when your mate's struggling, let's get around him instead of just telling him to harden up. When someone's struggling with their technique, let's not tell them to go out there and whack it. You know, if someone's sick, they're sick. If someone's having if someone's depressed, you know, let's back them. And there's some really good little things that Cricket Australia have done. Like they brought in the concussion protocol and all these little things. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> then it's hard, hard, hard enough, mate, and do what you have to do. Um, and, you know, I think it's there. I think there are enough good people in Australian cricket that want to move it forward, but it is tough. And, and that's the other thing about the sandpaper gate, right? The flip side is that Australian cricket had built up this uh, – sort of the Australian way and the way to play cricket to such a grand level that then they punished these guys for like unreasonable amounts, like a one-year punishment. I, it doesn't, it, 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 the only reason you would punish someone that so harshly is because your own estimation of what constitutes uh, bad behavior is so warped. I, I think I wrote at the time that, James Sutherland should have been fired immediately. Pat Howard, um, uh, Gavin Dovey, Darren Lehman, David Saker. So many people knew what was going on. And I have to be a little bit careful here because I don't want to burn people who've given me stuff. But this, you have to trust me to a certain point. This is not. This is not a. This is not a one-off thing. This had been going on for a long time. This was not a three-player thing. This was an entire team thing. It was a plan. There were Cricket Australia suits who were involved in the implementation of some of this happening. And they they hung, hung those three players out and basically said, if you guys talk up, you are going to lose your careers. That's my belief. Uh, it, it, would take, it would take a lot to convince me otherwise. And realistically... I'm not sure. I mean, let's let's not forget that Justin Langer was made the coach. And we have video evidence of Justin Langer cheating on a cricket field. Yeah, the you know? bail in Sri Lanka, right? The, and yeah. appealing for hit wicket, yeah. Yeah. Brad Haddon took the bails off with his gloves. Oh, yeah. didn't tell the umpire. They were brought in afterwards. We brought in people we had video proof of cheating on the ground. I don't think you get much lower than knocking the bales off with your hands and claiming a bold. You know, at least Justin Langer's had some creativity to it. I mean, these are the people they brought in to fix cricket. And look, I think Tim Payne's a really good bloke, but you don't have to cr- scratch the surface too far to see him playing the good bloke card about Virat Kohli and all this, you know, and Virat Kohli is Virat Kohli. Tim Payne plays with some blokes who I would think are as bad or if not worse than Virat Kohli. They just happen to be his teammates. It's it's a nonsensical thing. So for me, I think you're right. The, the overreaction was ridiculous considering that Australian cricketers had cheated before and will cheat again. And uh, Shane Warne was uh, was done under match fixing and um, – uh, drug uh, drugs charges during his career. Uh, other Australian cricketers have certainly pushed uh, things. Other Australian cricketers have th- said things that they shouldn't have said. Um, and I'm not talking recent. I'm talking back to the 70s. There were things that were said that were horrendous to opposition players. 
uh, it's nonsense uh, what happened to the sandpaper guys uh, realistically considering that, uh, you know, it took a quite a while for many other people who were as much to blame to be involved. And it's a culture thing. That's why I put James Sutherland in. I don't know how much James Sutherland knew, though I will say this. He was a Victorian seam bowler and outside of Pakistan, it seemed like Victoria were the leaders in reverse swing as they were doing it in the early 70s as well. Uh, there's no way James Sutherland didn't know about the illegal methods that were needed. And there's, no, there's no doubt that he did. He wasn't involved in that. But even if he didn't, somehow miraculously, he wasn't aware. It was his culture. It was the Cricket Australia culture. And you talk to people who work in Cricket Australia at that time, it was toxic. It was the cult of James Sutherland. It was the cult of winning. The, some of the staff were just, I mean, they were crazy, man. The way they thought about Australian cricket. Like if you wrote a piece saying that you thought a selection decision was wrong, they were like, I go back to the, you know, they were like Donald Trump supporters. They were, and, and sorry, not even Donald Trump supporters, but like the, the loonies who worked for him. It's just incredible stuff that they would think about themselves. Um, and so, yeah, the Sandpaper Gate, it came out of that whole Cult. Some of that Cricket Australia cult has changed, I think, with Sutherland going and not just Sutherland. There are a lot of worse people than him, sadly, working there. Um, but a lot of that has changed. Um, but let's not forget that in the era of fake, the era of um, uh, <laughs> of fake news, one way or the other, there, uh, it was Cricket Australia who started their own website and called it an independent news body. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. they did that in that period, you know, before Sandpaper Gate. They were ahead of the game when it came to their own sort of fake news. They they were trying to do what they wanted with the game. And then three guys get caught cheating on the field and uh, a bunch of other people who have been caught cheating before that get promoted. It's uh, It was a weird world at that point. Well, I also think, I, I, I thought, uh, you know, when all the... Uh, T20 leagues came in and when players were traveling all over the world to play together. I also thought that the general sort of insularity that might have enveloped Australian cricket back, say, in the 70s and 80s when, you know, it was just uh, the national team and they were just uh, playing. I thought that that would sort of uh, um, blunt the edge a bit. And with players seeing each other regularly, I I assume that, you know, the level of... uh, acrimony on the cricket field would sort of go down. Um, it seems to have had an effect, I would think, though that could be for various reasons, not necessarily this. It could be sandpaper gate, it could be various other things that happened. But I'm saying the last year and a half or so, or two, I mean, the previous Australian summer, the previous two Australian summers, been a little, little better, right? Yeah, I think also there's a lot of factors. One is we know that after the um, uh, monkey gate test, Australia settled down for a while after that because they don't like it. I mean, they were a very unpopular team uh, yeah. in Australia. And I don't think they'd ever been, they'd been shit before. <laughs> they'd been, they'd been uh, abused by fans before. I don't know if they'd ever been good and unpopular. And they weren't a great team at that point, but they certainly weren't a terrible team. Uh, and then I was, I was actually talking about that. I was actually in Sydney um, for that test. And the next day, next three, three days or so, because uh, the team didn't play, right? They refused to travel uh, to play after that. And I was in Sydney covering the team. And the number of Australians who just randomly came up to me and said, sorry, like, first mm-hmm. of all, like, I'm a player. I'm not even a player. But they just were genuinely apologetic for yeah. their team's behavior. Yeah. 
so I think they settled down after that. So it makes sense that they would settle down after Sandpaper Gate. The real thing is whether they're still settled down in 10 years' time. Yeah. I think, though, there are other, other things at play. There's, you cannot, with the, the way that cricket leagues are run in, in Australia now, there's no way you can get away with the sorts of behaviour that I talk about in my piece. You, you know, uh, the, the guy who took the stump out and tried to stab someone on the field wasn't even charged with a crime. Uh, he wasn't suspended by the league. Just, I just can't imagine that would happen anymore. Um, so little things like that, uh, you know, you have welfare officers at clubs now. They have access to, you know, uh, through the internet and through Cricket Australia and Cricket Victoria and Cricket New South Wales and uh, there are development officers and, office, you know, uh, welfare uh, people and outreach people and um people that help disabilities and minorities and women and all those sorts of things where there's more training and Australia is a different country. The Australia that I describe, especially in the nineties, no longer exists. We were, you know, looking back, I didn't realize Australia was moving from a working class society to a middle-class society. Uh, but now you look back and you're just like, yeah, that was probably the period where we, we switched over, you know, where we left the sheep's back um, and became a different kind of society um, in many different ways, which means that, you know, David Warner is not a massively popular person in Australia. He made a lot of runs and you'll forget it a little bit again, but I think that there's a big part of the society who just seems a bit of a dickhead. And it's unfair. I, obviously, I know Davey and I've worked with him, and he's a complicated guy, I think is probably fair to say. But I think David Warner in the 80s, similar personality, would be almost universally liked. And I think there is a, there is a big sort of part of that sort of thing uh, going on uh, uh, within Australian culture in general. They it's have also, tried- it's also a lot of increased immigration, right? Like I'm sure at the club levels you have a lot of, uh, you know, Sri Lankan players and Indian Im- immigrants and so many, so many other. I can see even in the domestic cricket, quite a few immigrants uh, playing there. We, I played in junior cricket teams where only three or four of the guys um, spoke English at home. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter. <laughs> it didn't. We, we I mean. We had Turkish guys who were playing in their first cricket team and would turn up with um, machetes because they were worried about. <laughs> okay. <going> okay. <laughs> I mean, I would love to. I would love to think that the interracial stuff. I mean, I played in a very interracial part of Melbourne, and it was. I you know I got sledged by by Greek kids as much as I did by the Aussies. I think uh, would be fair to say. I, I think that there's actually one. I remember um, an Australian writer talking about the difference between America, Australia, and England and France. Whereas if you're an American or Australian and you're Indian or Middle Eastern, uh, you can sort of be, if you speak with the accent and you drink beer and you like footy, at a certain point, you're just Aussie. Where maybe not completely, obviously, there's still, um, that's not to say there's not incredible racism in Australia and America because obviously, but whereas in England and France, no matter how cultured you are, you're always seen as uh, Asian um, mm-hmm. uh, or, or African or wherever you are from, but more. Uh, uh, and, but that also comes with the bad stuff. <laughs> that also comes with Simon Kadich coming from, you know, a Croatian family and still choking uh, Michael Clark in a change room because of, 
a conversation of, and my, Simon Caddish is one of the good guys, you know what I mean? So that culture is still there um, and, and it's there, but I just think Australia is changing. I go back now and my, um, I just laugh at how posh and middle-class Australia is and how they haven't noticed. Uh, if, I, if I was working for an Australian newspaper, every, the front page every day would be, this is incredible. Let's just keep this going, everyone. And instead, they find the weirdest things to pick up on and Facebook is really high and anti-vaxxing is really high and all these sort of weird things. They're convinced that, you know, there's, um, there's uh, hijab um, swimming pools in every suburb and, you know, all the, that Vegemite is gone halal and all these sorts of random things that bother them. And it's like, yeah, of course you're upset at those things because you don't have any wars because uh, the average wage is like, I think well, they pay $26 an hour is the average wage, so is the minimum wage. And so they find these ridiculous things to get upset about, like Sandpaper Gate, <laughs> um, where they suddenly, and you know, those are the sorts of things you notice when you leave a country. If I live there, I'd just be, you know, I'm just ridiculous in a different way, um, but I'd be just as ridiculous there. So I do think the country is changing. Um, the the one, one thing, thing I noticed, I, sorry, mm-hmm. j- just, just to add to that is I noticed a big difference in Australian culture when shopping centres started opening. Uh, it's a really little thing. People went from playing sport to watching sport. Now, there's still people play sport, but I, they don't play it in the same – you don't – this is from my friends who are back there, and I know this is not always the case. My, uh, my cousin still moans that the, uh, you can't play um, under 12s basketball without everyone playing um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, full-court press every play to try and win. But I don't think people treat those things – like test matches and like Olympic games, the way they did when I was growing up. Because your whole, when I grew up, it was the last time that the suburbs and the countries may be a little bit different, although I don't have as many friends who live in the country now, but the suburbs were what happened on Saturday at your local club was a really big thing. My local football club would get three or 4,000 people, um, you know, uh, to, to, yeah, to big games. And it was a very, very low division of, of, uh, this Aussie rules football. Um, it was a big deal. You had to pay to get in. You know what I mean? And it wasn't It wasn't professional. It wasn't even semi-professional. I don't think those sorts of things are quite as big now just because people go to shopping centres and they have other things to do on the weekends. And I think Australia has changed. See, all of those things are changing the way that Australia is. Um, in some ways, and this is what I've been told by, by some friends of mine uh, who still, still play cricket, the cricket has been one of the few sort of hangers on to the old old ways. Mm-hmm. And, but one of the things that is changing in cricket, and which I think is tangentially related to this whole, uh, you know, uh, male, uh, all male setting and things is the drinking. Because back in the 70s and 80s, the Australian cricket team was uh, inextricably linked to drinking and beers and uh, David Boone drinking all those beers on that flight and, and everything. It was, it was like play together, drink later, drink all night. Uh, Ian Chappell saying who's drinking, the drinkers are drinking and defending them and things like that. And I'm sure like now, nobody, I mean, I doubt if anybody's drinking 50, 57 or how many ever beers that David Boone drank because the game's changed. You need to be ultra fit, a David Boone kind of a physique and that that kind of a cricketer may not uh, do as well as he did back then, simply because the game, the game's demands have changed. So uh, that could be another part, right? As well. Yeah, I think so. When I grew up, you you play you, you went to training on Thursday night, uh, 
mm-hmm. and then everyone had a couple of drinks while the team was announced. So the team was announced live because it was before phones and everything. Uh, so you had to go to training to find out what team you're in or you had to find out from one of your mates or the captain. So you went on Thursday night, you, you trained for two or three hours and Australian cricket training is not like, a you know, if it didn't matter that we were an amateur club in the middle of nowhere, you know, people run laps, people did push-ups. Uh, it was, you know, there were advanced fielding drills. Still, my first cricket training was still more hectic than I've ever done in the UK ever. Um, and uh, so you had all those things and then you, then you had your drinks. And then on Saturday you went back, to, uh, you, you played, uh, your game finished. Everyone was expected to come back to the club. It was seen a bit of a, as a social faux pas with your club. If you didn't come back, you could get away with one or two, uh, but you were supposed to come back. Even if it was just for one beer, there was also there's a lot of drinking um, uh, parts to things. There were kangaroo courts that a lot of a lot of clubs had. Um, if you took a hat trick, you had to shout the bar. You know, um, uh, you could uh, if you made a fifty in the seniors, you would get a twenty five dollar bar voucher. Um, all those sorts of things. You would eat at the club, you would drink at the club, and when I, when I started, especially people would be there till eleven o'clock at night. It would you know it would be a proper thing. As, as again, as people got other things to do and wives started saying and girlfriends started saying and even girls who started playing, their girlfriends started saying, you were already playing cricket all day. I don't want to go to that place. And so cricket clubs then started to become slightly nicer and start the sort of places that, that, that women and families would want to go to. When I went, they were sticky floor. You know, it's ridiculous that my dad would take me to these places. But then again, I saw in the bars he went to, he probably thought the cricket club was nice. But, you know, they then tried to make the, the cricket club a, a nicer place for families, but people just naturally moved away. And so cricket became more about playing the game and having maybe one or two social drinks afterwards. And then you would shower and go out with your, uh, uh, with, with your, with your friends and have your normal sort of life. And I think that that is just a natural movement. I don't think that it's, you know, uh, it just, it wouldn't have continued to work that way. Um, the old thing of cricket widows, you know, even in the UK, it doesn't really happen. Um, when, and I think that's moving on. And it also has to because young Asian kids didn't feel comfortable in that environment. Young uh, juniors who didn't come from drinking backgrounds didn't feel comfortable in that environment. Young women certainly didn't feel comfortable in that environment. And so you you know, Cricket Australia wanted as many people to play and for it to be a family sport as much as possible. And so did all the boards and so did everyone involved. And I think there was a natural progression away from that sort of stuff. So I think what you get now is you have a lot more sort of family-friendly quiz nights um, and they find other ways of bringing, uh, you know, they have a, a family night. And they, um, I remember my club even in the 90s was having like um, – they had a women's cricket night and, you know, all sorts of things like that, you know, that, that, that you can, that, that you can uh, sort of bring in. So I think naturally the sort of the drinking has fallen away. Um, and then you've got, as you said, the minute you go up, uh, I mean, the last Australian cricketer I can think of that had a bit of a drinking problem was probably Mitch Marsh. Um Actually, I was thinking he, Andrew Simons, but then, um, yeah, maybe Mitch Marsh. After yeah, Andrew, Andrew Simons certainly. Um I'm not saying that others haven't been drinkers and it hasn't caused problems, but Mitch Marsh 
and Sean Marsh, I think, I think I'm right with Sean, but certainly with Mitch, it was causing him problems. He wasn't as fit as he should be. He was partying too much. Um, and they pulled him in pretty soon. And Mitch Marsh is a, you know, a fun, happy, go-lucky sort of guy. Um, in the 90s, he wouldn't have been pulled in, I don't think. I just don't think that was the case. And um, uh, so, yeah, I think that has – I don't know how you fit being a alcoholic into modern cricket unless it's a binge alcoholic. And there are – so that's what Andrew Simons was, as uh, I think. Uh, I, and I know a couple of cricketers that fit like that. Um, they don't drink a lot, but they when they drink, they go absolutely nuts. Um, and that's the only way you can drink, I think, as a modern cricketer, right? I just, I don't think, I don't think you yeah, have three beers at the end. You're playing, you're playing so much, there's no time to drink. Yeah, I just, I don't know where you would fit that in. I remember saying to someone that even the West Indian cricketers who, who have a reputation of being more of the part, I didn't think they drank that. I, I would say that the cricket media drink a lot more than the cricketers <laughs> now. Yeah. And I'm absolutely. not, sh- I don't think that was the case in the 80s and 90s. Certainly not of the Australian, English, New Zealand, South African sort of players. Uh, I don't know about the Asian guys because there's obviously different uh, different social pressures on them. Although, you know, that, as we both know, they certainly like their weed. If weed was legal, a lot of players will come out as weed smokers. I don't think as many of them drink. And you see that in the NBA, don't you? I think they're going to make uh, weed legal in the NBA because they'd rather their players doing weed than than, than drinking. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a talk of that. And uh, yeah, who knows, could be for the better. But one thing uh, which I, I want to touch upon, so Australia's had one of the greatest women's cricket teams for a while now, some of the greatest women cricketers. And that team and that side of things, they haven't been associated with any kind of you know, toxicity or the kind of stuff that you has happened with the men's team. Um, you know, uh, how would... Uh, it seems a bit like they're living in, uh, they're playing in another planet almost, though they mm. are from the same country. But the kind of uh, codes and the morals and the uh, methods they are using seems to be different from how the men have traditionally approached the game. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about it briefly earlier, didn't we? I, I definitely do think that's almost two different sports. I think that women's cricket was kept so separate from men's cricket, it developed its own subculture. Uh, when I when I first grew up in the 90s, most of the clubs that I was aware of that I knew the people who played in, the women clubs were sort of separate. So even if they were in the same club, they were separate, but it, they just weren't sort of integrated um, in a way that I would assume now, especially in junior cricket, um, I would assume that they're a lot more integrated uh, now. And in fact, Australian cricket, to be fair, the men's team really support the women's team in a way that even a generation ago I would have never believed. I think the um, the Healy-Stark marriage certainly has helped bring them together. Um, but I, I do think it is a slightly different culture. The Australian women are so successful, though, coming into the 20, was it 17, 2018 uh, World Cup? God, was it the Champions Trophy year? No, it must have been 2018, was it, the Women's World Cup in England? I have absolutely no idea. I was there, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, in, in that year, um, I did notice that they were just getting to the point where I think they were getting a really, really arrogant and really, really full of themselves. And when Harman Preet beat them, I tried to – you would have loved it. It was one of the worst questions of my career. Matthew Mott was the coach. 
And I, um, and I don't know Motti at all, but I watched him play for Victoria and the man never played a shot the entire time I ever saw him. Well, he played some shots when I asked my question. Basically, I was trying to say, were you guys overconfident? And I just couldn't phrase it in a way that he was pleased with. And he kept saying, I don't know what you mean. Say it more clearly. Uh, and eventually I couldn't say it. But I think losing there and then, and then perhaps losing a little bit in the last World T20 has helped them. But I just think that I have often thought that Australian women are just far superior to Australian men in almost every way. <laughs> uh, and I think having their own culture, had they been integrated into men's cricket culture, it'd be really interesting to see what the women's team would be like. Some of the best sledging I've ever heard comes from the English women, not from the Australian women. Um, not that some of those Australian women aren't hard as nails and are certainly, you know, full on. Uh, but they just, they don't seem to have that culture. Now, perhaps because I was always an outsider to that, uh, some, some, a bunch of women who played cricket in the 70s, 80s and 90s will, you know, uh, leave a comment somewhere saying that I'm wrong. But when I wrote that piece, no one said the women were like that. <laughs> no one, no one came out. And I just think it's a, it's maybe an organic thing of them growing, um, on their own, um, yeah, it goes back to your thing you were talking about before, the whole toxic masculinity, masculinity thing. Australian women are very different to Australian men uh, because they it's a very, very blokey culture. You know, in the piece I talk about the good bloke rule. Yeah. Everything is so masculine and is around um, uh, being a guy that it is the women are often pushed aside and left to their own. And in this case, they uh, were left to their own and went off to become the best women's cricket team and perhaps women's sporting team in the world um and as such they just act a little bit different but i've seen signs where i, I think they could get arrogant i just don't think they will ever be like the men's team I, bring me back on in 10 years time when uh, i'm completely wrong but i just don't see it meg lanning is as hard as they come just don't think she would have allowed sandpaper yeah, Maybe she's harder than C. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the integration point is extremely crucial. Uh, it could go either way. I mean, if the women were integrated with the men's teams at the lower levels, either they could start sledging more or the men could start behaving better. Uh, you know, just just by the, the presence of uh, good, better people around them. Well, just a small point that the cricket club that I played in and my mum and my auntie were involved both um, in that club. But I did notice that as time went on and that, and that club got rougher and that league got rougher, it, it was an economic um, problem in that league where most of our team and a few of the other teams came from the Ford factory. The Ford factory were laying people off. It was a tough male league. The women who were there who were involved were the sort of women who would accept that behaviour. Mm -hmm. It's not that they even wouldn't call them out, but there weren't enough women there um, that could make a difference. I just, I, maybe I'm wrong because I haven't been back to Australian club cricket and, and certainly those sorts of leagues. And my, the club that I grew up in after 130 years folded because they couldn't get any players. That's how much cricket has changed where, where I'm from. Uh, but I just don't think that that, that sort of stuff would be allowed and there wouldn't be a reports given and it wouldn't go to some higher board. Do you know what I mean? Just things that weren't available back then. Um, but in general, and this is my general rule in life, not just an Australian thing, always get more women involved because 
men end up a, a mixture. It doesn't matter if you're talking about backgrounds, whether you're talking about sexuality, whether you're talking about anything, a mix of people is always better than a homogenous group. And when it comes to men a thousand times, you talked about the old boys school in your novel earlier. There's another, uh, you can buy his novel at all good bookstores. But <laughs> uh, I, I told my wife very early on uh, that I would not allow my sons to go to all boys schools. And it was because I grew up playing cricket with guys who went to all boys schools. And they were the worst. They had terrible thoughts about women. They had terrible relationships with women. And I've always thought that too many men usually is a problem, uh, which I think modern, well, actually almost the entire history of civilization has now proven. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Sharda Ugra, who both of us know, uh, this terrific uh, cricket writer and sports writer, read my book and said that I love the book. But I am so glad I went to an all-girls school and I had nothing to do with all the rubbish that you talk about in the book. So I completely agree. Uh, women in general are uh, a great addition to anything. As a dad of two girls, I'm <laughs> the first person to recommend being around more women. So on that note, uh, and, and I'm um, hoping that at some point um, in the next few months, I can do a podcast exclusively on uh, women's cricket and the behavior and the culture and various other things. So don't, please don't accuse me of uh, throwing in this gratuitous uh, bit in this podcast. So uh, we'll be back with more. And Jared, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Yes, wonderful. And uh, Jared has a podcast. He has, uh, I'll link that and I'll link his website and various other things. And uh, you can uh, go back and listen to some of our podcasts uh, on our website, 81allout.com. And uh, we have uh, all other cricket writers on there. We have, we've actually coming up, I think, on uh, 83 podcasts, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a lot for you to catch up if you want. And uh, thank you. Thanks for joining India us. Win. He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild.